Welcome to the History of the Mongols, episode 25, Legacy. So, over the past 24 episodes, we've covered two centuries of history, from the birth of Genghis Khan in the 1160s to the final disintegration of the Yuan dynasty in 1368. For 160 years of that time, from the moment Genghis unified the steppe tribes in 1204 or 5, the Mongols were the preeminent power of the period and the most compelling story of the late Middle Ages. Never before or since has a nomadic power emerged to conquer settled societies on such a scale. Although, as we've seen, the Mongols began to adopt the practices of settled rulers once the era of conquest was over, they left an indelible mark on Eurasia. The reputation of Genghis and his successors has fluctuated wildly over the years as fashions have changed. The popular image we have today is very different from the views of, for example, intellectuals in the 19th century. Today I'll try and wrap up 200 years of history with a look at the legacy of the Mongol Empire and the popular image of the Mongols. We'll do this in three parts, starting with the political legacy, then moving on to the social changes they wrought, and finally look at the popular perception of Genghis and the Mongols. This is obviously a pretty big topic, so inevitably I'll have to skim over certain areas but hopefully I can provide a solid overview. Let's start with the political legacy of the Mongol Empire. As I've said on several occasions, it was the largest continuous land empire in history, at its peak stretching from eastern China to eastern Europe. The wave of conquest that created this empire swept away many established dynasties remarkably rapidly, and completely redrew the map of Eurasia. The speed of change is part of what makes this so unusual. The empire was fully formed in a hectic 65 years from 1206 onwards. Compare this to the Ottoman Empire, for example, one of the most important imperial powers that emerged after the collapse of the Mongols. That took more than 200 years to reach its full extent. A glance at the map in 1206 and 1270 shows the profound nature of this change. The patchwork of smaller states is replaced by the vast blocks of colour representing the Mongol Khanates. Many of the states they overran had often been around for several hundred years. The Abbasid Caliphate, which fell when Huleg conquered Baghdad, had existed since the mid-8th century. The Sung Dynasty since the mid-10th century. These had been the dominant powers since the early Middle Ages, but they were conquered, often in a matter of years. Once Mongol power itself began to crumble in the 1330s and 1340s, there was a vacuum that allowed new states to form that would themselves dominate the early modern period. The Ming Dynasty in China the Timurid Empire in Central Asia and the Grand Duchy of Moscow all emerged from the ashes of Genghis's empire. 
In several cases, the policies of the Khans played a part in the particular settlement that emerged in the 15th century. We looked, for example, at the policy of the Golden Horde in promoting Moscow over the other principalities until Moscow became the power that would succeed as the Grand Duchy that then itself morphed into the Russian Empire. In China, the conquest instigated by Genghis and completed by Kublai remained in place once the Ming pushed out the Yuan and allowed them to rule an area closely approximating to modern China. China has remained unified ever since. Even the formation of the Ottoman Empire owed something to events going on in the Mongol world. It was founded in Anatolia, an area which was, for a significant period, a vassal province of the Golden Horde. However, the chaos in the Horde, after the death of Nogai, the kingmaker of the era, in the 1290s, and the displacement of Turkic people in the aftermath of his death, facilitated the formation of the Turkic Ottoman state. The modes of government in these new states were not necessarily greatly different to those that had preceded the Mongols, but government by the Mongol Khans did produce a reaction against foreign domination in some areas, and perhaps a formation of new identities. This is a difficult issue because of the fragmentary source material, but in China, the Red Turban rebels and the Ming dynasty that formed from this movement was built on opposition to the Yuan rule. Once in power, the Ming sought to distance themselves from the foreignness of the previous dynasty, returning to traditional Chinese Confucian modes of government and repudiating the trade led by foreign merchant associations. China became for a period more introspective. In Russia, the battles fought against the Golden Horde, which brought together the Russian principalities to oppose the Tatar yoke, as Mongol rule was called, began the process of creating a Russian state and perhaps a Russian identity. If not entirely evident at the time, the Battle of Kolokovo, where the Muscovites and their allies defeated the armies of the Golden Horde, became a powerful symbol of Russian nationalism. In Central Asia, the conquests of Genghis broke the old tribal groupings completely and incorporated them into the Mongol military. Once Mongol power collapsed, these reformed as the new Turkic identities, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, etc. So how did these events translate into social and economic change? Well, the history of humanity is in many ways the history of the movement of peoples. It has been one of the key instruments for spreading ideas and culture for millennia. The disruption of Mongol domination acted as a catalyst for the movement of peoples, and therefore as a globalising force. The cosmopolitan nature of the Mongol capitals at Karakorum and then Kanbalik is attested to in the sources. Karakorum had Confucian temples, mosques and churches within its walls to serve its varied population. 
The Mongol conquests transported large numbers of Chinese and Persian artisans, as well, of course, as women, about whom we know very little, from one part of Asia to another. The Mongol coalition itself was heterodox, made up of many Mongol tribes, but also of Uyghur, Merkit, Hittans and other groups. With the growth of the empire, these groups themselves found new homes, often in large numbers. So in the 1340s, the battle for the Ilkhan throne in Persia involved a group of Uyghur living in Anatolia, now in modern Turkey, as well as the native Turkic tribes and members of Genghis's own Mongol clan. We should also not ignore the fact that many who administered the vast empire were transplants, Chinese doctors, Persian Muslim administrators, Uyghur scribes and merchants from across Asia all played an important role in running this vast multinational empire, often far from their original homes. The changes caused by this relatively high level of movement, at least by the standards of the 13th and 14th century, was also supplemented by the policies of the Khans themselves. They spread ideas like agricultural techniques, new varieties of food, medical technology and military technology across their empire. So Chinese gunpowder was exported to the West, first Persia and then Europe via invasion. And three decades later, Persian engineers bought the counterweight trebuchet to China for use in the siege of Xianyang. As well as technology, recent research has also shown that elements of the Mongol system of government, like the Royal Guard or Hesig, often survived well after the fall of their empire. While religion never played a great part in Mongol politics, the faiths of the Khans did encourage the spread of different religions across their lands. In China, for example, the Yuan dynasty's close association with Tibetan Buddhism and their sponsorship of monasteries encouraged that faith's growth and their general sympathy towards Christianity. You'll remember that a number of key figures in the early empire were Eastern or Nestorian Christians, well, in the later Yuan period, that sympathy led to the establishment of the first Catholic bishoprics in China. At the same time further west, the conversion of rulers like Uzbek Khan to Islam encouraged the spread of that faith in Central Asia. The final and probably most important part of this web of exchange was trade the circuits of trade that flourished under the Mongols and were actively encouraged by the Khans extended from Korea and Japan to Western Europe. We've covered this in some detail in the episode A Global Empire, but it was so extensive that there is a lively historical debate about whether the period of the Pax Mongolica truly represents the first world economic system. We also can't talk about the legacy of the Mongols without mentioning the destruction their invasions brought. While some cities flourished under Mongol rule, 
Others, like Agench in Persia and Kiev, took centuries to recover from the devastation of Mongol invasion. The human toll of their conquests was enormous and left whole regions devastated. We don't have an accurate figure of how many died as a result of the Mongol conquests, but it was undoubtedly many million. And of course they were also responsible, inadvertently, for the spread of the Black Death to Eurasia, which wiped perhaps 40% of the population from the map in less than a decade. The Middle Ages were a time when violence and disease were a constant, but the Mongol invasions and the Black Death were of a different order of magnitude entirely, and they profoundly affected the social and economic structures in many areas. So, what about the perception of the Mongols? Well, the judgment of history has changed considerably over time. We actually saw something of this over the course of the period we've been studying. The first contact with the Mongol armies was a profound shock to the peoples of Europe, Persia and China. They saw this new threat in apocalyptic terms. These were not simply soldiers, they were devils destroying everything in the path. The language used by the Persian and Christian chroniclers is melodramatic and filled with descriptions of the graphic violence of the Mongols. Fast forward 50 years though, and the Mongol Khans had morphed into examples of power and opulence. The palaces and lifestyles of the great Khans drew ambassadors and visitors from across Eurasia and Marco Polo's descriptions of Kublai Khan and the riches of Yuan China created a new interest in the Oriental world in Europe. In the era of the Enlightenment, when religious orthodoxy was being challenged in Europe and interest in China was at its height, the secular regimes of Genghis and Kublai Khan were generally received positively. This, though, began to change in the late 18th century as scientists and ethnographers began to take an interest in racial differences. Attempts now discredited were made to classify and explain racial differences entirely using physical characteristics. Mongolian, or Mongol, was first classified as one of the five races by the German scientist Johann Friedrich Blumbach in the early 1790s, and these ideas were readily adopted by many 19th century scientists to justify what is called a scientific racism. As a racial term, Mongolian was not just used to describe the steppe nomads, but the Chinese, Eastern Asians, and in the 19th century, indigenous peoples from the Arctic, the Americas, and even parts of the Pacific Islands. This was based on the perceived physical similarities of these groups, as separate from the Caucasian and black, or to use the term of the time, negroid, physiology. This is not the place for a discussion of the spread of this scientific racism that became immensely influential during the 19th and even early 20th centuries. I'm by no means an expert, and it's a vast area, which is extremely interesting, 
although deeply disturbing. The point is that the Mongol race was compared unfavourably to the intellectually and physically superior Caucasians, as of course was every other race. So Mongol or Mongolian became a term that implied racial inferiority in the minds of many well into the 20th century. This was compounded by the second use of this term. In 1862, John Langdon Down described the genetic condition which today bears his name, Down syndrome. He believed that it was possible to describe mental conditions using racial characteristics. Based on the appearance of Down syndrome, he classified these as Mongol or Mongoloid. Here's his description from an 1866 paper. A very large number of congenital idiots are typical Mongols. So marked is this that when placed side by side, it is difficult to believe that the specimens compared are not children of the same parents. The term Mongol to describe Down syndrome lasted until the second half of the 20th century, when it was rightly contemned as offensive, although it is still occasionally used as an insult even today. So the racial theories of the 19th and early 20th century reduced the proud steppe nomads of Genghis's Yeke Mongol Ulus, the great Mongol nation, to inferior racial beings, and further suggested an association between the Mongols and intellectual disability. Mongolia itself was under Chinese occupation for more than two centuries, from 1691 until 1911, and from 1924 until 1992 it was a socialist state with very close ties to Soviet Russia. As a result, Mongolian culture and history were largely invisible. So it's really only in the last 20 years that there has been a flourishing of interest in the Mongols. A wealth of academic work has been published, exploring a wide range of topics, from the cultural interchanges of the 13th and 14th century to the systems of government under the Khans. There have also been archaeological investigations at sites, including at the old Mongol capital Karakoram, that are adding to our knowledge of everyday life under the Mongol Empire. The explosion of scholarship has been accompanied by some excellent popular histories of Genghis, Kublai and the Mongols, by authors like John Mann and Jack Weatherford. There has even been a modest explosion of popular culture relating to the Mongol period, including a recent Netflix series about Kublai Khan. The period of the Mongol Empire has been reappraised and is being increasingly recognised as central to our understanding of the late Middle Ages and the emergence of the states and practices that would shape the early modern period. This has allowed us to move beyond the image of Genghis and his descendants as purely mindless destroyers of civilizations, and to take a more nuanced view of what they achieved. One of the legacies of the Mongols, of course, was violence and conquest. It's just that if we stop with this, we miss out on so much more of interest. I hope over the last 25 episodes I've conveyed something of that richness, something of what makes this a pivotal period in the history of Eurasia. 
Finally, I'd like to say thanks to everyone who's taken the time to listen to the show, to like it, to comment on it on Twitter, to email me in person. It means a great deal. And if you have time to leave a like on SoundCloud or an iTunes review, that would be great. Now, although we're done with the Mongols, I've enjoyed doing the show so much that I wanted to keep going with podcasting about history. I'll be away over the summer, but stay subscribed for an update on what's coming next, which I hope will launch this coming autumn.